This is Still Rowing, a podcast where members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints share their authentic stories of struggle and triumph on their journey of discipleship, and just why they are choosing faith in the restored Church of Jesus Christ. Renee Kreiwold, a native of Vienna, Austria, has been a member of Fair Mormon for over 18 years and has been instrumental in founding the German-speaking Fair Mormon Group. Renee's particular focus is on comparing the teachings of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints with those of both traditional Christians and the early Christian centuries. One of his major interests has been to understand how anti-Mormon literature works, how to discern the reliability of information provided, and how to grow in faith while studying arguments made by the opposition. Renee is a software developer and project manager for a European financial institution. He is married to Gabrielle Kreiwalt, and they have four children and four grandchildren. Welcome to the Still Rowing Podcast. I'm your host, Tara McCausland, and I'm so excited to welcome Renee onto the podcast. Thanks for being here, Renee. I'm glad to be with you. Let's see what this day brings. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, Renee told me that he's already had kind of a long day, so we're going to go easy on him. (laughs) Thanks a lot. (laughs) Um, But actually, Renee is in Austria, which makes me very jealous. I've always wanted to visit Austria. So if this goes very well, maybe you can let me come hang out at your house someday. (laughs) Well, after Corona, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. How I found Renee uh, was through a podcast uh, through Fair Mormon. Renee did a presentation for Fair Mormon, was that two years ago or was that? 2019, yeah. Okay. And so I, after listening to his uh, presentation, I thought I need to have Renee on. And Renee has a very interesting background and uh, has a lot to share in the way of helping us defend the faith. And this will be a part of our Anchors of Faith series as we talk about learning how to defend our faith and sustain our faith when it's under attack. But again, to start, uh, you you do have a very colorful religious upbringing, Renee. Um, Would you tell us about that and your ultimate conversion to the church and perhaps some of the challenges you encountered on your faith journey? Okay. Uh, Yeah, my mother is an Italian. She came to Austria at age 10 in 1940, uh, and uh, being an Italian, she was very Catholic. She was the second of four girls, and um, at age 30, she married a widower, my father. His father was uh, really rooted in democratic process, and uh, he was from Poland, actually, a factory worker who was shot in uh, World War I and who uh, wanted to, his son to have a, a better life, to, to study a lot and, and to not be just a worker. And uh, he succeeded. Uh, my father was a, a national economist. Uh, he loved his, um, his philosophers. He, one of his life goals was to be able to buy any book anytime that he wanted to have. So he had a, a library of uh, about 3,000 books. And uh, he was, as I said, he was a widower with two kids. And then he married at, at age uh, 38. 
he was atheist. No, no, not really atheist. He was agnostic. So uh, he just said, if there is a God, he doesn't have anything to do with me and I not with him. Uh, this was part of his upbringing, but also because his first wife uh, got cancer and he earnestly prayed for her uh, salvation and she died um, two days after his birthday. So he said, obviously, God doesn't listen to me. Hmm. Uh, but he loved his philosophers. He, um, when we went for a hike, uh, he would uh, he, we would stop at the table and he would pull out some some book and read for us. Uh, he put me to sleep with uh, French philosophy in French <laughs> at age four years when, when I still had problems with sleeping. I can tell you those philosophers, especially if you don't understand the language, they can really put you to sleep. <laughs> Good bedtime though. <laughs> <laughs> But I, I uh, grew up with uh, philosophic thoughts and uh, had my intellect challenged and uh, grown. And I liked that a lot. And on the other hand, there was my mother who was uh, very believing, but without any intellectual foundation. And there was uh, her younger sister and she met with the missionaries and um, was baptized and my mom wanted to see what her crazy sister did there and so she came to church and uh, my mom is an opera singer so she um, she sat in church and it was warm and welcoming and uh, people were nice and they talked with each other and uh, yeah the the normal singing in church was with four voices and she liked that a lot uh, and basically she was baptized because of the nice singing and because of the um, she read uh, third Nephi and she said well this is aligned with the bible so no problem here I can join and that's it but as you can imagine with uh, so little real information about the faith uh, she was not firmly rooted. So she, um, she, was, she still is a person who likes to... to well, she's is very strong-minded. Let's say it and leave it with that. And if you're strong-minded, you always have your problems. And whenever such a problem uh, arose, she just switched back to Catholic until there was a problem and then back to the church. And so I think I was four years old when I first, uh, that's my first rec um, remembrance of the missionaries at our home and then uh, with a primary. And uh, then it was Catholic again. And then at age eight, I was baptized by my elder brother. Um, at age nine, we were all Catholic again, except for my father who was uh, again, agnostic and that's it um and uh i was uh, all the time in, in austria we have um religious religion classes in school um so every um there are i think 16 churches that are recognized in austria 
members of these 16 churches can get uh, religious education at school. Hmm. Um, that's from Catholic to Islam, basically. Yeah, so I, I uh, decided that uh, since I was half Catholic, half um, Lettery Saint, uh, I wanted to, to uh, attend uh, Catholic uh, religious, religious education, uh, starting with a, uh, at age six. And uh, as I said, um, at age nine, we were all Catholic again. So I had first communion. I uh, went to, um, to Alta, Alta Boy School, which was uh, twice a week for two hours. And uh, I uh, acted as an altar boy every day and twice on Sundays. My mother wanted me to go to the Vienna Boys Choir, which I did. And um, as a choir boy, we, when we're not on tour, uh, we sang uh, in Catholic masses in Latin every second Sunday. So I basically, after, after singing, 1890 masses you know the mass by heart mm -hmm. in latin even if you don't speak latin <laughs> um yeah then i had my confirmation catholic confirmation at age 13 and at the boys choir i had a very good religious teacher and he took the time to sit with me in our free time and discuss things and i have tremendous respect for him uh, but I felt that his way is not mine. The Catholic way is not my way. Um, so I met with uh, Lutherans and uh, had some religious education with them. M my father had a, a Talmud, the Jewish book. Mm -hmm. um, and, well, yes, um, I read that at age 13, but before that, and I have to jump back here, sorry. <laughs> You're good. Uh, so before I was baptized, um, I decided that I wanted to read the New Testament, the whole New Testament, and I did. Um, at age 10, I decided to read the Old Testament, the whole Old Testament, wow. and I did. And uh, at age 13, and this is now back in the timeline. I read the, um, the Talmud and the translation of the uh, Quran. Uh, and I found wisdom in all this, but nothing that really connected with me. I had friends with the uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. And so I read their liter literature or some of their literature um, and I had friends who were Jews, so I saw how they did things too. Yeah, and then I found a Book of Mormon in the library of my mother, actually, and I read it. And when I came to Moroni's promise, I was fascinated because my dad always told me it's not scientific to just accept things you have to have a, a kind of test. And everybody who does this test has to come to the same 
uh, result. And then you can say, well, this is certain knowledge. And I thought that it was quite straightforward of Moroni to say, think about it, pray about it, you will receive an answer. And I thought this is the scientific method, basically. Mm -hmm. Test it. So that's what I did. And I received an answer and uh, decided on that day to come back to the church. And I did. It was in summer. Everybody was on uh, a youth camp, everybody in my age. But I came back. Uh, and after some weeks, I was uh, ordained as a teacher. And um, yeah, so that's what, that was my start back to church. But half a year later, I was uh, at home and it was uh, my parents decided to go on a holiday for a week. And it was the first time since I was back from the choir that they uh, were on a holiday without me for that long. But I was 13, 14 almost, so that was fine. But I was bored. I tried to find something to do. I had some slides from my tours with the uh, choir and I wanted to look at them. And for that, I needed the, the machine, the, the slide machine. And I found it and below it, there was a book. And the title was in German, um, I was a Mormon. And it's an anti-Mormon book written in the 1950s, I think. So I was intrigued and I read it. Uh, it's, uh, I, I, it took probably two hours and it shook me. It shook me really bad because there were so many things in there I had never heard about, about the church. Um, Mountain Meadows Massacre, um, polygamy. I was overwhelmed and it was 11 in the evening. So there were, those were the days when you only had landlines, no cell phones. So there was no way I could call a friend hmm. without the parents knowing it. And at 11, everybody should be asleep in those days, right? Hmm. Uh, so I was really alone. My heart was racing. I couldn't breathe and I couldn't think. Thoughts were just circling around like, like crazy, panic absolute panic and um, so I decided to do the only thing that I could do pray because there was nobody to ask so I prayed and I received an answer the answer was read a page from the book of Mormon or a chapter and I said what chapter the answer was doesn't matter just read okay so I did that and read a chapter, I don't remember what it was. And I became calm again, but my questions were not answered. So again, I knelt and said, Father, I read a chapter, as you said, what now? And the answer came, pick a chapter in that book, that anti-Mormon book. And look if there's anything in there that you know about. And if the book portrays the church correctly in that chapter, then 
you may believe that book, but if not, why would you believe it? And I did. And the book told me something about um, the Mormons don't have any connection to God. They um, don't speak of love of God, nor do they feel it in any way. They just think about laws and commandments and doing the right thing. Jesus is not existent and doesn't have any special place. Everything is about Joseph Smith. The normal ward member is a heartless creature who doesn't like to make contact with anyone. <laughs> and I said, well, nothing, nothing in this chapter is correct. That's not what I experienced. So I will not trust this book. But from then on, I want to know everything about those topics. I will not give up until I can say I have researched everything and I know about it. But I will not trust that book. And uh, that's what I did. And, and then I, uh, the next Sunday, I went to my bishop and said, well, bishop, see, I, I've got this book here and it's crazy stuff in there. <laughs> Uh, and uh, what about it? Do you have any answers? And he said, well, that's just nonsense. Throw it away. Well, that was not the answer I was hoping for, to be honest. Uh, but uh, this also meant for me that uh, I felt it likely that someone, aside from me, would uh, find anti-Mormon literature and be affected and not have someone to ask questions. And maybe doesn't get lucky enough to, to pray and to receive answer like I did. So I decided that uh, as a grown up, I would want to be the one to have the answers. Hmm. And so that's what I did. I set, uh, um, it set me on that course. And uh, since then, I studied for, for some probably one and a half dec decades. I studied and, and read every, every single book, every website uh, written by anti-Mormons I could get my hands on and analyzed that and made it a starting point for my studies. And doing that gave me not only a firm testimony that God lives and that he speaks with me, that he's accessible, but also it gave me an intellectual testimony. I know that Joseph Smith had no chance in heaven, earth, or hell to come up with all these things on his own. No chance. Um, and since I know that, um, that God lives and talks with me, sometimes, not every day, not every year even, but sometimes, uh, I am very certain that he talked with Joe Smith on a more regular basis hmm. and in a more personal way, not just with feelings or sometimes with, a, with one sentence or two. That's the, the two parts of my testimony. The third part is uh, 
what I call the, uh, the testimony of living. I've seen that the gospel works. It is a way to be more happy than any other way I've seen, and uh, I've seen much. I'm, I'm interested also in Kung Fu, which I, I've been studying Wing Chun Kung Fu for 20 years, uh, which oh. led me to appreciate uh, Buddhism and, uh, and um, ancient Asian thinking. But the way to be happy is in the gospel and it works. I love that story, Renee. And as, as we started off, I said, you have a very colorful religious background and probably more so than the vast majority of anyone that you'll talk to. And I loved how uh, voracious you were in your search for truth, that you were willing to do all this homework and all this reading. And, and from such a young age, you were 10 when you read the whole Old Testament, correct? That's right. You were 13 when you read the Talmud and the Quran and uh, just so Joseph Smith-esque <laughs> to me in, in your, your search for truth. And, and perhaps, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but was that really propelled by maybe seeing the dichotomy in how your father approached religion and your mom that you wanted to find maybe a, a middle ground? Yeah, yeah, you could say that. Uh... It hurt me seeing those two adults uh, fight about uh, religion, and I cherished them both. I I knew that there is a God. I, I cannot remember a time when I didn't uh, accept that as truth. On the other hand, uh, there was my father who read most of the 3,000 books he had, hmm. and he, you could not find him without a book. Uh, probably he, well, I know he was not born with a book because he just had one book as a, a child and a teenager. Uh, but, you know, book was an extension of himself. Hmm. And thinking and logic was very important to him. And I liked that a lot. It made so much sense, you know. And probably I, I wanted to bridge those two worlds and bring them together. Well, and it, as you were sharing about your mom's experience, that she was not firmly rooted because she was essentially converted to some social aspects of the church. And if there was a problem in the Catholic church, she would go back to the LES church and vice versa. And, and I think that that's what we, what we bump against if we are converted to the social aspects of church. People will disappoint us. There will always be problems in an organization. <laughs> and so being able to dig deeper and really understand doctrine um, is really key, but also having the heart piece as well. So, and I, I love that you have this very strong balance of you wanted to know about all of these difficult topics, as you mentioned, that's the head piece, but you also, in difficulty, you relied upon your heart. And so I, as we move forward in this conversation, I, I look forward to hearing how we can do that ourselves because I, I do think that it, it's a balance between the head and the heart as we are defending and building our faith. Now, I know that moving forward, you had an, a difficult experience uh, making some choices, being excommunicated from the church. So would you be willing to share more about that experience? 
Of course. Actually, I like that topic. Um, if you uh, read the media, you see that there are some people who uh, are being excommunicated and they make a big stink of it and they gather people to give them support and to um, to pressure uh, church officials to, to keep them in the church or whatever. Um, and for me, being excommunicated was the most important, most formative blessing I've ever had. Mm. Uh, so let me tell you a bit about the circumstances. I was uh, 17 years old and I was madly in love with a 16-year-old. We wanted to marry which is not possible in Austria at that age. And back then it was a, a woman could marry at 16. A man had to be 19 or 18 if the parents and the judge proclaim him ready for the marriage. So at age 17, no chance. And uh, she was in a nursing school and I was already working because I had quit school deciding that uh, if you go the normal way in school, you only will do normal things. And I wanted more, not just sitting there and getting info dumped by the teacher. <laughs> um, well, so uh, I had my own flat and we decided to, that, that she should move in to, to have uh, more time together. Bishop said, are you crazy? She was baptized just two weeks before she moved in with me. Um, are you crazy? This will not end well. And we said, well, what do you know, Bishop? Yes, maybe other people will get in trouble with the law of chastity, but not us. <laughs> we will manage. And it came as it uh, had to come. And um, five months later, uh, she was pregnant. And we were... Uh, talking with the bishop all the time. So he knew what happened. And he said, well, now we do not have a chance. We have to have a, a disciplinary court, as it was called back then. It was a bishop's court, of course. I was there explaining to the bishopric what had happened and what I had uh, tried to do and what didn't work and whatever. And then my wife was in... The, my girlfriend back then was in there and I was outside and then they sent us both to pray while they delivered. And uh, I was in the garden of the ward house and I prayed. It was dark and I said, Father, I know I've messed up big time. And I know that I will be excommunicated, but don't let it happen to Gabi, my wife, now wife, because she's just not long enough in church to be able to bear that, please. And you know, you know, this was actually minutes before I was excommunicated. And I heard the Lord tell me and made me feel, yes, your wish will come true. That will happen. I uh, was then called in again and the bishopric pronounced uh, that I was excommunicated and my wife wasn't and uh, that the gift of the Holy Ghost was taken back. And it was like a light switch that went off. It was dark. I don't know if you ever have been in a, a bunker 
And if you know, so you don't know how dark it can be if there's literally no light at all. But that's what I felt in that moment. And uh, I wouldn't get the light back until I was baptized again one year later. And uh, whenever someone would testify, I would see a flicker, but not more. And it was my only connection to the light. Later on, the bishop told me, that was when I was uh, baptized again, he told me that the bishopric had decided that um, it was not necessary to excommunicate me. And they um, presented this to the Lord and the Lord said, no, that's not it. Hmm. So they discussed it again and again, and then they came up with, they had to excommunicate me because there was no chance that we would not live together anymore now that she was pregnant and the priesthood had to go away for this time. Now, how could I be angry with the bishop for doing what I asked the Lord, what the Lord confirmed to me and what he inspired the bishopric to do. How could I not accept this as uh, the act of a loving father? How could I not feel that this is for my best? Hmm. And I know that back then as a youth, I was very, very full of myself. I knew everything better than anyone. I think a lot of us can relate to that. (laughs) (laughs) And this experience of being excommunicated and what led to this excommunication showed me that I had to listen to those the Lord said before me. And it made me humble. And I know that this was important for me to learn. Hmm. And then it was the best thing that could have happened to me. One year later, I was baptized again. 15 months after my baptism, we were in the temple sealed for eternity. And I've never missed a Sunday. Well, aside from being ill, I was always in church and the members were great. They they just embraced me. Hmm. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. I know that's very personal, Um, but I love to hear people share positive experiences with excommunication. It's now called withdrawal of church membership, but I do think that members who don't understand the principle of excommunication, that it's, it's not about punishment, but about renewal, I believe, and giving an opportunity for that individual to have a fresh start. My father was excommunicated uh, 15 years ago, Um, after being disfellowshipped twice earlier in his life. And he speaks of it in similar ways as you did, that it was a blessing, that it was very formative, that it was a testimony builder. Obviously everyone has their own experience, but you know, there, there have been some, as you described some people in the media recently who have been uh, excommunicated and have been very loud about it and feel uh, like they're being mistreated. And I don't know their circumstance. And so I can't place a judgment. However, I do know that it is mercy that is at the forefront of that discipline, not judgment and punishment. Uh, 
So thank you for sharing that testimony. And I believe that, yeah, all these things, uh, these hard things that we might experience with our testimony can be testimony building as you suggested. And so we're going to kind of uh, shift gears a little bit here. In your bio, I had mentioned that you are part of FAIR and a lot of people don't know what that is. So I'm going to let you explain that a little bit more, but you have been a longtime member of FAIR Latter-day Saint, right? Is that what they're calling themselves now? Not FAIR Mormon? <laughs> well, actually we started out as FAIR. And okay. then we were told that in order to get more hits on the uh, on the internet, which is essential to our mission, mm -hmm. we should uh, add Fair Mormon. These were the days when President Hinckley uh, put out the "I'm a Mormon" campaign. Right, right. And uh, now President Nelson advised us to not use that moniker anymore. And uh, we discussed for a long time how to go on and how to change. And the church told us for a long time, well, it is not necessary that you change it now. It will come, but not now. Now it is better for you to keep the fair Mormon moniker. Mm -hmm. A few months ago, then they said, well, now is the time. Please do it. So mm -hmm. we, we um, had already discussed what to do. And uh, we talk about ourselves as fair just fair because that's who we are and what we are uh originally the foundation for ap apologetic information and research and now it stands for faithful answers informed response so that's that's what it stands for now and the latter-day saints part is just to connect us uh on the uh in the url to the faith community we uh, try to to serve. It started as uh, a few uh, people um, discussing things on the internet and and uh, seeing that on the uh, social media of that day, 22 years ago, uh, there were always the same questions, always the same problems, and they wanted to have a clearinghouse where they could bundle up their information and probably have prefactored answers because the questions were prefactored. Hmm. And uh, I was invited to be part of the group as uh, the first member, not from uh, the US or Canada. Uh, as I said, about 22 years ago, we started just as a um, email list and then we had a website where, where we put down the most important answers and it grew and grew and grew. We have a yearly, a, a, an annual conference uh, in the US. We had four conferences in Germany, which I organized. Hmm. Um, and uh, it's, our website has the, the largest database of question and answers uh, concerning uh, the church it's doctrine, practices, history, leaders. Well, basically, it's the largest database concerning those issues, if there are issues. Um, and of course, there are people who are disgruntled and leave the church, people who fear for their own flock because of the missionary work, you know, uh, all over the world, the, the northern half of the world, world at least, uh, churches are losing uh, members uh, by the droves. And um, 
the Church of Jesus Christ is, uh, well, actually growing. Not as fast as it uh, was growing in the 1980s, uh, but it's still growing. People fear what they do not know. People fear what can take away their members. Um, and so there is a lot of inform information, pseudo-information, uh, mm -hmm. that is designed to take people out of the church or to keep them from uh, becoming uh, members of the church. Scholars found out, and they bought the idea, uh, that if you bombard someone with thousands of uh, nasty little bugs, people will snap. They will get into a state of panic uh, where the brain is reduced to, to the animal brain. Logical function is limited. And then you can switch people. It's and called cognitive... Little bugs, that's a metaphor for overwhelming them with lots of information, correct? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's information or even misinformation. The thing is overload the brain with uh, little facts or what seems to be facts with questions that they can't answer. Um, yeah, basically that kind of thing. You have to okay. get someone to not be able to get away or to hook them, and then you bombard them with questions and, uh, yeah, inf misinformation, basically. Right. Okay. Uh, and it is not important if uh, the, the individual points you shoot at them uh, are relevant or even true. It's only about mass. I don't know if you know the word document shock. I've heard that term, I think, from FAIR. <laughs> okay, good. So document shock. If you get a, a school kid uh, to read a, a, a book at university level, after the, the first page, the kid will say, I understand nothing. And I can't read anything further because I know nothing. I'm too stupid. Uh, yeah. Hmm. And, and it, this is the mindset they want to get you in to prove to you that they are the experts and you know nothing. So you have to accept. And then they, they shoot those questions at you. And that's what happened to me, basically, when I was 13. And it happens with everyone. And the natural reaction to that is, I have been lied to without thinking who did the lying. It's panic. So you want to get rid of this situation. You're in a totally emotional state. You make an emotional decision and then you justify that decision by logic. And the best logic to justify a change of, of faith is if you get others to do the same step. So mm -hmm. now you, you shoot at others the questions that you can't answer and they cannot answer them too because they're not important, basically. Or they are obscure, you turn someone else, which in fact makes you believe that you did the right thing because others react the same way. So now you are, you are infected with anti-Mormonism and you infect others. And it's always the same uh, pattern. And you will always hear, I have been lied to. I once asked the guy, well, you say you have been lied to about the first vision. So who did the lying? Was it the uh, primary 
uh, teacher, Sunday school teacher, bishop, stake president, who did the lying? Well, I don't know. Somebody lied to me. Well, who did it? I don't know. And this is a sure sign uh, that something has happened. And it's not logic. I think the best way to defend against this is to slow down. Oh, that's probably my, my Kung Fu. If everything gets hectic, I have to slow down. Yin and Yang, as they say. So if, if I feel panic, I know that I'm not in the best mind to make decisions. So I have to get out of the panic before I make any decisions. One of my hobbies is I'm a beekeeper. And uh, one day I was working uh, with, a, um, with some bees and they were very aggressive, coming at me, wanting to sting me extremely. It was a situation I really didn't like. Uh, and we, we got rid of that, uh, of that queen very soon after. But I, I had this um, beekeeper's veil on and suddenly there was a bee in the veil and I panicked and I just ripped off my, my veil. Uh, it, it was a panic reaction, not a logical reaction. So the result was that instead of getting one sting, I got 19 in the head. Um, you don't want to know what I looked like. <laughs> but that happened because I was making a panic decision. Panic is not the state where we can ponder and think and decide logically. So that's why I said you have to get rid of the panic. You have to focus on one single point, And then if it's solved, you go to the next. And if it's not solved, you stay with that point, no matter what. Uh, once I had a question thrown at me and it took me three years to find the answer and it was always there it was totally easy I just was not, not able to see it hmm. so you have to be patient uh, to find your answers and you have to trust that there are answers even if you don't have them now or right now and I think this is very important for us as people of faith faith means to wait upon the Lord wait till his timeline is okay and to be ready for that timeline so if you're feeling panic about something slow down analyze it use your brain that that's the important thing i think mm -hmm. well and maybe to rewind a little bit so going back to fair if you as a listener are unfamiliar with fair a great resource if you've been stung <laughs> and you're having difficulty finding answers. Um, I've used FAIR as a resource for a number of years and it's, is it just FAIR.org or what's the, what's the website now? Uh, the address is uh, FAIRLatterdaysaints.org. Okay. FAIRLatterdaysaints.org. Okay. And I'll put that in the show notes, but what I love about FAIR and what I love about what you just shared with us is that we have resources. Like when you were 13 and you were alone at 11 o'clock at night reading this anti-Mormon literature, you didn't have access to, to FAIR or to someone that could give you an immediate answer. Now, perhaps that was a tender mercy because you had to turn to the source, which I think is also a key element that we need to talk about. Um, 
But when, when we are faced with difficult information, whether it's someone actually confronting us that we know with information, or we'll just stumble across information on the internet. Would you say that's correct, Renee? Often it is, is it? that uh, you know someone who becomes affected by anti-Mormonism and he will give you some link, some document, whatever. I don't know many people who just uh, searched the web for something and then came up with an anti-Mormon site and stayed on it. Okay, uh, yeah. You need this emotional connection. Why would you read that? Who wants to have his faith challenged? Nobody wants that. We, we, we don't like it uh, when God um, tests our faith. Mm-hmm. So why would we like it if some people do it? So you need this emotional connection. I've looked for a question, uh, for an answer for three years. And this was a, a coming from a, a friend who had a problem in her marriage. And she wanted to prove that something about the temple. And her husband was opposed to the church. And he said, well, the temple is just, just uh, mumbo jumbo. And so she went on the, on the web and she found some internet sites about all this. And, that, and, and she was hooked because she wanted the answers. And then she, she, she panicked and then she was overwhelmed. Hmm. And of course, after three years, when I came back with the answer, it was too late for her. She was not in a state of mind to be patient in that situation. Mm-hmm. For me personally, I, I feel like it can be helpful to read or listen to not straight up anti-Mormon literature, but things that are critical of the church so that I can understand where uh, the opposition, so to speak, is coming from. But when would you suggest that it's not a good idea to listen to or read or watch something that a friend has suggested that you read that's critical of the church? Well, I would say if you're not in a good place, then don't do things uh, that need you to be in a good place, right? Mm-hmm. So if you're tired, if you're angry, if you're sad, if you're troubled, if you haven't eaten enough, or if you're sick, if you fear about losing a loved one in any way, then you're not in a good place. If you, um, if you notice that you're lacking in your scripture study, in your prayers, if you're lacking in your uh, responsibilities in the family or the church, probably not in a good place. Mm-hmm. That's wise counsel. So just being aware of where you're at personally. But I think we, we can, if we have our armor on, we can, we can look into some of this information if we are willing to slow down, make sure we're not highly emotional and focus on one point at a time and be, be willing to be patient with the process. Uh, because I know, uh, for instance, the CES letter is kind of a, a classic example of, would you call that document shock? It's the, mm-hmm. the overwhelm of, of, you know, trickle, 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 so much information that it overwhelms the mind. I feel like what you have suggested up to this point, if we are being confronted with difficult information, whether we just stumbled upon it or we have a loved one who is sharing something with us to slow down and don't let our emotions lead out and to continue to remember the experiences that we've had in the past. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. 
Exactly. Don't take off your armor. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> now, I recognize that not all people who come to us with questions and doubts, they're not trying to deconstruct and tear down faith. They may just be having their own faith journey. That's a part of life. Um, but there are also circumstances where there is a, a situation or information, misinformation that's been put out there specifically to destroy faith. So I think it's important that we can dis distinguish the two and we might mm -hmm. um, approach the two differently. But you specialize in interfaith dialogue and with your knowledge and experience with other faith traditions, this makes a lot of sense. So what are some key points you feel like are important when we are communicating about the restored gospel to people not of our faith? Okay, uh, very good question. I like it. Um, you know, sometimes uh, members of the church will say that uh, we are the only true church. Uh, we are the only true church, which means you are <laughs> in apostasy. <laughs> and uh, we know everything and you know nothing. I think this attitude is not only unkind, it's wrong. Now, let me back up a little with this. I'm not saying that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is not the only true and living church. That's not what I'm saying. But there's a difference between the church being the only true and living church and me being the only true and living church. Understand? Mm -hmm. So the thing is, uh, think of, of, of William Law. He was a counselor to President Joseph Smith, and he actively worked to kill Joseph. So was he part of the true and living church personally in that situation, or was he part of some other church? Uh, and, and if you think about it this way, uh, you also have to think about what does it mean that the church is true. In English, there's one word, true. In German, we have two words for that. The one is wahr, and the other is treu. So uh, the one thing is uh, a statement can be true, and the other thing is being true to something. And I think the church is true to the covenants. It is the church that has the covenants, all the covenants, including the temple, and which is under the obligation to gather Israel. No other church has this obligation. And we are, we are members of the living church because there is a prophet of God. So the church can adapt to new situations because God is still speaking. That's the true and living church. And the next thing is, does God, uh, is God well pleased with this church? Well, it depends on my actions. But it's never me who is so good and therefore I'm a member of the church. But our Heavenly Father invited me to become so good. And in some millennia, I will be so good, but now I'm not. I'm just on the way. 
And with this mindset, we can say that uh, other churches, they don't have the fullness of the gospel, obviously, but they have parts of the gospel and they cherish those parts. I've learned much about grace from my Protestant friends. I've learned much about tradition from my Catholic friends. I've learned that we have very much in common uh, with my Orthodox friends. They believe that we can become gods. They believe in eternal marriage. We're not alone. We are part of a community and it's our job as a church and as church members to be spareheads for the work of God, but we're not alone. And they are not our enemies. They are with us. This is an important thing for me. And I've learned being a German-speaking member in an English-speaking church. Basically, we don't have many books that you, the, the many books that you have in English. Translation is always a problem. And sometimes you think, mm -hmm. what did the translate to the smoke when they came up <laughs> with that translation? <laughs> And I know how hard the work of a translator is. Part of my family is in translation for the church. So I'm not throwing <laughs> blame around. Please, please don't misunderstand me. Yeah. Uh, but it's hard to be a translator. And, and, and so I'm very much aware of languages and the effect of language and thinking. Every religious tra tradition has its own language. So for instance, if we talk with Protestants, they will focus on grace. We don't focus on grace, but we have many teachings about grace that we are not aware of and that we cannot communicate to them. So like the Apostle Paul said, we have to become a Greek to the Greeks and the Jew to the Jews, speak their language, know their thoughts, and then speak to them with them uh, if we want to communicate. So one, we, we don't focus on uh, amazing grace. We sing redeeming love and we sing, uh, we, we, we sing about mercy. We talk about mercy. And that's the reason for grace. Grace is just, for us is not important because the love is important. Okay. So we focus on different things, but we have to cherish what they have. And that's what... Uh, uh, Lutheran bishop once said, uh, Christa Stendhal, he was a bishop of Stockholm, I think, and uh, when the Stockholm tem temple was, uh, had its open house, he was invited as a speaker there. And he said, um, if you speak with someone from another uh, religious tradition, there are three things you have to uh, be aware of. One, don't get your information from the enemies but, but from those who are rooted within that tradition. <laughs> That's very important. Uh, the second, leave room for holy envy. Yeah. So this is, there is something in the other tradition that you like, but which you do not have and which you probably cannot have. He mentioned in the, in the context of uh, baptism for, for the dead, he said he liked that idea very much, but it will never be part of Protestantism. No chance, but he likes it. It's, it's beautiful. Um, and the third idea, 
don't compare the worst thing of the other tradition with the best thing of your tradition. Compare, compare the best and the best. So basically, it's don't say the Catholics, they had the Crusades. And we, uh, well, we were always peaceful. That's not true. We had our problems. I just I mentioned the Mountain Meadows. That, that was done by members of the church. Incre I, I can understand why it happened. It's incredible to me, but I can understand it. And that's the worst point we had in the church. So if we want to compare something to the Crusades, let's take Mountain Meadows. Be fair. Mm -hmm. um, and if you do that, then you can talk with others without uh, antagonizing them and without talking down to them. And you can actually learn from them. You know, um, I love to compare the temple with uh, ancient traditions, but I also love to compare it to Catholic tradition. There are so many things. If you happen to be at a traditional Catholic baptism, if you go there with open eyes, you will see so many things. At the door, the priest sometimes stands and asks questions. Do you believe in God, the Father, the Almighty? The, the parents of the kid, they will have to say yes. And, and so it goes on. And, and that's the basis for the creeds, the, the Apostles' Creed, basically. It was baptismal questions. And then you, you go in and you see uh, the priest, the, the room has three areas. Wonder why that is, huh? <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, you, the, the kid will get white clothes, be um, anointed. And then, it, of course, there's baptism, which, which is a ritual washing. You will maybe see when they say the Lord's Prayer that they will join in a circle around the, the altar. Now, if it's more modern Catholic uh, parish, you will see them singing uh, the Lord's Prayer and doing movements to that. Very interesting to see. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the, you will understand that the, there is a holy of holies uh, in every Catholic church. And you see the symbols and you can relate to that. And of course, it's not what we have. It's not the same, but there is a familiarity and sure. you can cherish that mm -hmm. and you can build upon that. I love what you're talking about here because I feel like a part of being able to sustain our own faith is actually understanding the faith of others. I think sometimes there's this misunderstanding or misconception that if we look into other people's faith traditions or read their religious texts, that somehow that will detract from our faith. And I think it's actually just the opposite. We have the opportunity to take and glean the good from a myriad of faith traditions, compare what we have, and also better understand what it is that we have. Because I feel like so often, especially if you've been brought up in the church, you take for granted what you've been given. If you don't have anything to compare it to, then you will not appreciate it as much. And so I was just taking a few notes um, to summarize some of what you said. So 
be versed in other people's face if you want to have interfaith dialogue, right? Just be right. able to speak their language. Also, we need to approach them with humility. That's so important. These are God's children. He loves them. He's actively working in their lives. Whom will you baptize if you say you're bad and you're <laughs> ugly and we don't right. like you? <laughs> right. We are way past thinking we're better than other people, I hope, because God is a is God to all. Um also just, yeah, having a healthy dose of holy envy, but that requires us being familiar with other people's traditions and to be able to appreciate them. So great stuff. And I, I love, I love all that you said there. Now we've already gone into this to some degree, but I feel like this is really the essence of what we're trying to get across here. So we will be confronted with information that will challenge our faith at some point in our lives, if we have not already been confronted with that or with people who will want to tear our faith down. So could you, in addition to your suggestions to slow down, uh, to not get emotionally involved in, and sucked into the panic, focusing on one point at a time and being patient. So in addition to those points, what would you suggest are some key tools that we need to have as members of the church to counter attacks on our faith? Okay, so the very first thing for me is don't be a fundamentalist. Don't be in a mindset where there is only white and everything that is not white is black. Because this means there's only good and bad. And if I think about the temple, Adam and Eve, they didn't decide between good and bad. They decided between good and better or bad and worse, but not good and bad. It was far more nuanced. I mean, uh, just taking the, the fruit, if we say that is bad, then Eve sinned and uh, Adam fell and it was all bad and uh, we're damned and whatever. But that's not what happened. Eve had to decide which commandment will I keep? I cannot keep both. What will I do? Adam had to decide which command will I keep? Will I stay with Eve as I have been told or will I not eat? And that's, that's um, more relevant to our lives. Decisions between good and better, between bad and worse. And the same is true with everything in religion. If we just look at things from this black and white mindset, this, this is helpful when we are in danger. We need fast decisions. We don't have time to think about it. Black and white is good. But in every other case, we have to to see the middle and understand why now in this situation, this is better than this. So this is the most important thing. And this, this means that we have a, a, a flexible faith, a faith that can endure not having all the answers right now. And even a faith that can say, what I knew yesterday was okay, but not everything. This means that prophets don't know everything all the time. Joseph stumbled from, uh, from revelation to revelation. Basically, you know, when, when uh, baptism for the dead came up, he gave the revelation. And then the members just ran to the nearest uh, body of water and they <laughs> baptized without any secretaries, um, <laughs> women for men and, and the other way around. And then Joseph said, oh, well, stop. This doesn't look right. Let me ask back. 
And then he got an answer and more. And he said, well, uh, we have to have secretaries who write down what happens. Books are kept in heaven and earth. And please, only a woman baptized for a, a woman and not the other way. Uh, and, and you see this all the time in, in the history of the church. It, it happens all the time. They do things and then they realize, well, this is good, but not good enough. Ceilings to parents. Wilford Woodruff, I think it was, right? Who said, do the people don't have, uh, do they not have parents of their own? Why, do, why are they sealed to church leaders? They have parents of their own. Let them seal, be sealed there. Mm-hmm. No, and this was I don't know how how many time, uh, years after after the first revelations about this. Brigham Young said, if in his uh, presidency Joseph would have translated the Book of Mormon, he would have translated it differently. It is good enough as we has it have it now, but it could be better. Mm-hmm. We just don't get the perfect thing at once. We get one line upon line, and we need to be ready for that. We we not, we need to embrace that. That's a mm-hmm. good thing. So that's that's uh, important. And you have to be willing to see things to the end. Stick with the program until you have all the answers. And in all this, don't forget what you already know. You have a testimony, stick with it. Don't throw it easily away. You know how to access heaven. Stick with it. Get revelation. Also, Brigham Young once said, restored gospel, and this is not an exact quote, the restored gospel is comprised of all truth, be, they, uh, be it found in heaven, in earth, or in hell. So if there's truth in hell that belongs to the church, can there not be truth in other churches that we, not do, we do not have right now that we need? And so if someone comes with, a, uh, with an attack, I'm trying to understand uh, what this tells me. For instance, there's the attack that endowment is only a Masonic uh, ritual. Well, that's stupid. But, uh, you know, it, it made me think and study about the endowment in a way that is totally life-changing for me. And uh, one, one major point in this was that I found the writings of Margaret Barker, who is a Methodist, and she writes about the Temple of Solomon and the rituals there and the, the theology there. And she has a book, it's uh, Temple Mysticism, Temple Theology, I don't know, she has both books. And one of the books, I always give people who want to prepare for their, first endow- for their own endowment. And it's written from a Methodist, and she is she she specialized on the Old Testament. She is a, a well-known scholar, uh, and I give this book to to young people and say, read this, and you will understand what you're doing in the temple. Again, great information. I've been taking a lot of notes, and I feel like many of the guests I've had on beforehand have have said similar things. I believe it was um, Jared Halverson who talked about not being too rigid, not, you said, don't be a fundamentalist. So if, if we're too rigid in our faith, if, if we uh, brush against something hard, then it, our testimony will break. We do have to be flexible and malleable. And uh, this, this idea of patience, it is always line upon line, precept upon precept for a prophet or for me and everybody in between. And so being willing to let the Lord lead us along day by day, And then finally, I love what you said about remembering what you know. 
I feel like too often people will get confronted with hard information and suddenly, yeah, they throw everything out because something that is unfamiliar and that is causing panic is suddenly going to take precedence over all that other previous experience. I, I hope that we cannot do that. And as you said before, to slow down. So I have loved this conversation so much, Renee. I wish that we could talk longer. Um, <laughs> Same here. We'll have to have a part two, but I would love for you to answer this final question, which is in all of this, Renee, with all that you've experienced, with all that you've seen, why are you still rowing and choosing faith in Jesus Christ and his restored church? Because it's true and I know it and I cannot deny it. With everything I've lived through, I know that there is a Father in heaven who loves me and who is willing to communicate with me, who's willing to part the, the veil and let me in. And uh, I know that, uh, that Joe Smith was a prophet and uh, listening to President Nelson, well, how can we not say he is a prophet? You know, uh, in the future, uh, everybody who is not, uh, who doesn't have a testimony of, of his own will not be able to stand. Well, and uh, we have to prepare to have church at home and not church in the church building. Oh, what happens? Okay, we have to prepare the, the uh, missionaries to, to use Skype and to use the internet. Oh, without that, the uh, missionary work would have fallen down. So... How can I say he's not a prophet? I know he is. And I've, uh, I've known good men and women in the church who have been inspired and who have been called to lead. And I know it's true. I cannot deny it. Well, thank you so much, Renee. You're a rock star. And, and honestly, I, um, I love the work that you're doing. And I know that it's important work so I, I hope you'll continue to do it and, and continue to bolster the faith of those around you. Appreciate your time today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Still Rowing Podcast. If you would like a little daily motivation to keep rowing, you can find me on Instagram at churchofjesuschrist underscore sr underscore podcast and on Facebook at churchofjesuschrist SR podcast. Also, if you've been enjoying this podcast, if you would go to iTunes and leave us a rating and review that would help us spread the word about still rowing. Thanks again for listening.